0: Welcome to the Master Passive Income Show. My name is Dustin Heiner, and I'm here to help you get financial independence, quit that J-O-B, that just overbroke job, by investing in real estate so you never ever have to work a job again. And today, I'm bringing on a fantastic expert who has literally been investing in real estate a little longer than I have, which is a say a lot. And with that, We're going to talk about the market, about investing, about the interest rates, economy, everything, and you're going to learn a lot on how you can invest successfully to become financially independent and successfully unemployed. All right, let's start the show. What's going on? Super blessed as always to have you here on the show with me. Now, I'm breaking away from our family. This is Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening. So my family, what we've been doing is we've been doing Sunday afternoon game nights where we get lunch and pizza and buffalo wings and then we play games. Well, we've been playing forever. The game Risk. You guys have probably played it once in your life, maybe played it once in your life. Usually you don't play it much after that because it goes for hours, like literally hours and hours and hours. And man, actually, my wife from the very very beginning is it it's hilarious but at the same time kind of irritating. We get set up, I'm in Australia. You know, that's a really good spot. Only one little area that's can can attack you from there. It's not the best spot for the most pieces that you get, but you're fortified. You only have one spot coming in. Well, my wife is literally right next to me. So I get all of Australia and she's like, I'm going to take him out. From the very beginning, she starts attacking me and taking all of my pieces and I fight back. And then I'm also in another place like North America and my daughter's attacking me. So needless to say, I got beat out pretty quickly it was i mean it took about four or five hours before i got kicked out but they're still playing it's been four hours since i got kicked out and my kids are saying we're never playing this game again and they don't want to quit though because they don't like losing you know they're a heiner they don't like losing and because they're occupied right now playing that game my wife's still in it i am like you know what i got plenty of time let me go and talk to you now there's something i've been kind of thinking about for a while and i want you to really think about what type of content you like to hear On Master Passive Income. So there's two types of content that I really like to put out. Number one, well, actually, the entire show, from the very, very beginning, it has been my content, like literally teaching you how to find property managers, how to build the business, how to be successful, how to invest well, so you'd make money every single month and hopefully get financial independence. So from the very beginning, it's always been my content literally teaching you. But then, because I've been podcasting for, I don't know, five, six years now, I've met so many fantastic investors. In fact, created the Real Estate Wealth Builders Conference because I have so many fantastic investor friends, and we all bring our audiences together and create one big community, which is amazing. Check the link in the description. If you want to come hang out with us, get 10% off as well with the link in the description. But with that, I also have been getting people who want to come on the show and talk about real estate. Now, I love it. It's fun. I love meeting more people. But I want to know: What do you like to listen to? Like, what type of content do you want to hear from Master Passive Income? Like, genuinely. Like, if you want me to do more teaching, I'm 100 all for that. In fact, I have a series planned out on how to be a really confident and successful investor. That's really just—it's much more about what you need to do in your mind, like changing yourself. So I have that all planned. It's like eight episodes. And with that, I've also realized that I do enjoy bringing people on and interviewing them to get their perspective on how to invest in real estate. Now, the episode that you're going to hear today is a great episode where I interview an investor who's investing since 2000 or 1999, where I started investing in 2006. And so he's investing longer than me. And we talk about the market, the economies from 2006 to now, like similarities. And we actually have some disagreements. I wouldn't say disagreements. We actually have points that we project present to each other as well as we have counterpoints you are know, not disagreeing we're just saying this is what I see and so you're gonna get a lot more dialogue in this type of episode so I want to know and there's a way that you could actually reach out to me and tell me so I want to know what do you like do you like more content do you like a mixture of both do you like it coming where I'm interviewing somebody else or do you like it where I'm just literally teaching so actually this is probably be the best way on Instagram. Find me on Instagram. I would appreciate if you follow me. I love being able to share all this real estate investing stuff with you on there as well. But the Dustin Heiner, T-H-E Dustin Heiner, follow me on there and then send me a DM. I love getting DMs. In fact, that's communications like one of my love languages. I love communicating with people. And with that, just let me know what type of content would you rather have maybe 50 50, 75% somebody else, you know, interviewing somebody, 25% me, or whatever it might be. Let me know because it really helps me. I want to, for you, I want to help you to invest in real estate. And that's my ultimate goal. In fact, If you guys were at RubeCon last year, I unveiled my goal was to help 1 million people to invest in real estate and hopefully become financially independent. And hopefully, you are one of them. In fact, I love also getting DMs from people who, after just listening to the show, started investing themselves and literally started buying properties. And you've heard quite a few of these interviews I've done recently. People are reaching out to me on Instagram. So definitely reach out to me. I would appreciate if you follow me. It's fantastic to get more and more people investing in real estate. Now, with that, I am pumped to bring on a fellow real estate investor who has done lots of different types of investing. And he's a business owner like I am. You start out as an investor, but then you realize what you do is you own businesses. And those businesses have inventory or you produce a service for your customer and once you have that once you realize that in your i guess financial independence journey or whatever you're doing in your life to basically get into real estate investing and changing your life then you'll realize i own a business and then hopefully you quit your job and have 40 plus hours of your life and then have 40 plus hours to put to your own business then you have more businesses. Hopefully you'll get to four, five, six, seven businesses that are all running themselves just like I do and just like my guests. And I'm bringing on another investor who we are gonna talk about the economy, interest rates, how to invest successfully. And you're gonna get a lot out of this episode. I know you will. Let's jump on today's show where I interview Greg Dickerson, who we are gonna talk about how to invest in real estate successfully with high interest rates and a crazy market. All right, here we go. Greg, thanks so much for being here.
1: Hey, thanks for having me, Dustin.
0: Now, this is great, Greg. Now, I've, I've seen you um, on other things like your YouTube channel, as well as I follow a gentleman that does stocks. And he had, uh, I was, was watching what he was doing. I saw you on there too. And I was like, oh man, this is cool. It'd be great to talk to another real estate investor. You know, this other gentleman is not, stock, or not real estate he's stocks, but I was like, man, I just love talking to real estate uh, investors and people have been doing it for a while because when you do real estate investing for a while, eventually you start realizing that there are more ways to invest like i love residential four units and below that's so amazing i love it because it's just cash flow all the time but there's so other great ways which you've got into but anyways i i shared a little bit about what you've done in the past and you also do started you know i started back in 2006 started investing but you started a, a while ago just like i did talk to us about how you got into investing in real estate
1: yeah, yeah. So, you know, 1997 is when I started. So um, a couple of things there, like on the stock front and things like that. I do have people I work with that are you know investing in stocks, markets, crypto, things like that, because you want to be that complete investor. Right. So whatever you're doing for me, it was businesses. And we'll, t- we'll go over my journey. I was investing in businesses first. Then I used the cash flow to invest in real estate. And it used to be that real estate was the number one wealth creator, created more millionaires than any other vehicle. Now it's tech. Well, actually, it's finance. Finance is number one. Tech is number two. Real estate is number three for the creation of most millionaires. But real estate is the number one where wealth is stored. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Tax benefits, leverage, you know, all these different things. And the reason that the financial industry has surpassed real estate is because the the bull market we've been in for the last few years, you know, especially post 2020, you know, a lot of upside in the, the, uh, you know, stock markets. And crypto markets. And what I do is I work with a lot of people that are exiting that, getting into real estate and helping them, you know, kind of understand what they need to be investing in and, you know, those, those types of things. But, anyways, my story short, I didn't go to college. Uh, I joined the Navy right out of high school, 1985 to 89. I did retail in the Navy. And, um, after I got out of the Navy, I did restaurants and construction. The only two things I ever did. I started like, you know, hauling lumber on job sites and I was, you know, busting tables and washing dishes in restaurants. And I ended up working my way into management, became a regional manager. And I always had a little construction business on the side. I started by this, uh, working for this one guy that was doing an addition on the restaurant, And I went, uh, and started cleaning up, you know, uh, behind him on the job site. He's noticed I was a hard worker said, Hey man, I'll pay you to come clean up behind me. And I was like, okay. So that's how I started learning construction while I was working in restaurants. You know, fast forward to 1997, I moved to the Outer Banks of North Carolina and uh, I was going to open a restaurant. I worked in the restaurant industry down there for one season and decided I did not like very short season. Couldn't get any help. Uh, you know, people, it was, it was a difficult time. There just weren't any employees down there. Um, kind of like it is now. So, um, you know, I had bought a house and I was trying to get some work done on that house, and nobody would call me back. I was trying to do an addition, get some landscaping done. It didn't matter what it was, nobody would return your phone call. This is nineteen ninety seven, so I start talking to my neighbors. I'm like, "What sounds the like is today is same yeah. thing happening
0: right now." I'm like,
1: what, what is up with people? Why won't anybody return your phone call?" They're like, "It's so busy that people just literally they do a job, they go home, answer the phone, they go to the next job. Where there's a problem, there's an opportunity." So I said, you know what? I got some skills. I don't want to do this front thing. Why don't I start a little handyman company, remodeling company and do little projects like I'm trying to get done, like people are trying to get done that nobody will do. So I went and uh, came up with a name Outer Banks Construction. I went and registered at the county. Nobody had that name, made it sound like I'd been there forever. Then I started putting yard signs and newspaper ads all over the place, started knocking on doors, talking to all my friends that had businesses, saying, hey, you know, Greg Dickerson, Outer Banks Construction, I'll do, I'll do anything. What do you need done? You know, I'll put a, I'll change a screen, change a light bulb, build a deck. What do you need done? So I started in 1997. First year, I did 250000 in sales. Seven years later, uh, I was one of the largest builder developers in the area. We're doing $30 million a year in building. Um, I exited that company, uh, reinvested all that money into other real estate development deals, scaled from there. I started 12 other companies along the way during that time period from '97 uh, to 2004, 2005 when I exited that company. Exited all but my whole thing was I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And what I got out of the book, um, you know, a lot of people read Rich Dad, Poor Dad and they get real estate out of that book, right? They want to be like Robert Kiyosaki and Kim and they want to invest in real estate. What I got out of the book was Rich Dad. I wanted to be Rich Dad. He was the guy that had all the businesses. He's the guy that everybody came to with deals and opportunities. He was the guy that was mentoring everybody. I was like, that's who I want to be. So that's what I did. I went out and started building and buying companies and reinvesting those profits into other assets and was mentoring and coaching people, helping other people grow companies with me as partners, as sometimes as an investor, as an owner. Uh, You know, I didn't run any one of the businesses. I kind of ran them all through other people. And uh, and then I reinvested all the profits in real estate and just kind of scaled from there. Started with one little lot flip. Then I started building spec houses. I started buying and renovating. I started building commercial buildings. I started doing land development, like subdivisions, you know, neighborhoods. And then I started doing, you know, did some multifamily, did some storage, industrial, just, you know, I was in a very small, limited geographic region. So I did a lot of different types of things from business and, you know, stuff like that, because I didn't want to travel. I wanted to be there for my kids. During that period, when I was doing all of those things, building all those companies, growing and selling my company, I was at every event that they had at school, never missed anything. I was home every night for dinner and I was home, you know, every weekend. We took, you know, four weeks a year vacation. So, you know, a lot of people that this hustle culture that we're in now that think you have to go, go, go 24 hours a day and all that. When I started my entrepreneurial journey, that's when I was able to own my time and, you know, set my own agenda, set my own rules and be there for my kids and my family. You know, so that's, that's my journey. That's me in a nutshell.
0: That's awesome. Hey, so I didn't want to cut you off because I wanted to hear everything you're saying. So I think your microphone is hitting your zipper. So it's it's making a lot of noise in the background. So just got to keep, keep an eye on that. But um, love it. Love it. And what I've found is that for me personally, even though I'm an investor, I invest in real estate, what I really am is I'm a business owner. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. Being a business owner, you actively have inventory, like properties being your inventory. And so my inventory for my real estate is my properties. That's my inventory. And I have the product that I need to lease out, you know, rent out to people. Same thing with other businesses. And what was so amazing was when I was blessed to be able to quit my job. I think I was 37 years old. I, was, I quit my job and then I realized I love working or I love being active. I love doing things. But then I also thought, you know what, I could do so much more with my life, 40 plus hours of my life back to me that I could then build my own businesses, spend with my kids, um, do everything that I want to do as opposed to working for somebody else. So the fastest that faster, if anybody as fast as they can can get out of working for somebody else, then you are now back to putting your own time and value into yourself. So I I love that. Now talk to us a little about, so you started back in uh, back a while ago, as well as through the crash in 2008.
1: Yeah. So on that note, so can you hear me okay now? I I set the microphone down. Good. Yeah. I know that zipper thing, man. That's annoying. (laughs) I apologize for that. So on that note of, you know, working for somebody else. So there are some jobs that are like a business. So what I always tell everybody is, you know, have your own business, your own investments so that you can, you know, compound that and reinvest. But for some people that earn a lot of money, two, three, 500,000 million, $10 million a year. A lot of people out there that have salaries like that.
0: And I want to pause for a quick second and share that. Honestly, I really want you to invest in real estate. Now my new goal is to help 1 million people invest in real estate. So two things I would ask from you. Number one, if you get anything out of this episode, please share it with somebody else. Just say, Hey, you know, check out Dustin and master passive income. He really wants to help a million people to invest in real estate. That's number one. Number two, I want to get you to invest in real estate. Get my real estate investing course. Absolutely for free. Text the word rental. R-E-N-T-A-L to 33777. Rental to 33777. I'll literally give you my course, show you how to find an area of the country to invest, how to build the business first. You know, I always talk about that and how to find the right properties, how to make sure you're getting experts to do the work for you and scale the business to where you're making $250 or more in passive income. Scale it up to quit your job. I'll literally get it to you or go to masterpassiveincome.com forward slash free course Obviously, it'll be in the description, but I really, really want you to invest in real estate because the more that actual, normal, everyday people own real estate that are good landlords, the better everybody's life gets.
1: Think of it as a business. That is your business. Use that cash flow to invest in other assets from that W-2 job, that business, into other assets that will, number one, reduce your tax burden. You become a real estate professional. You can eliminate W-2 taxes and real estate uh, gains or other capital gains. But think of it like a business and use that uh, to invest in their assets, to get out from under, you know, other people. I work with a lot of high income earners, medical, dental professionals, professional athletes, and that's what I help them do. I help them understand what they're doing now is their business. And then, you know, invest in these other things in a tax advantaged way so they can escape that W-2 and then get out there and, you know, live life on their terms. But didn't mean to interrupt, but I wanted to kind of put that in there.
0: Oh, absolutely. And when somebody is, when they're making money, they have taxable income that they need to hopefully get rid of. Meaning, meaning taxes. They don't want to have that taxes. But the great thing about real estate that I love is the more that you see that you're going to be taxed. I'll give you an example. Recently, I called up my accountant. I said, "Hey, how much am I going to be paying in taxes this next year? You know, next tax season." He said, "A lot of money." I'm like, "Oh man," he gave me a number. I'm not going to share. But I was like, "Oh man, that's a bummer." So what do I do? He said, start paying expenses now and start buying investments. I'm like, okay, done. <laughs> I need start doing that. So I said, like on my conference, so I started paying all the bills now that's going to be happening next year. Started buying properties, investing in that money. What's great is the government's going to penalize you for keeping that money, but it's actually going to benefit you if you actually spend that money on things that make you more money, which is absolutely amazing. Now, do you do, I see some similarities. From 2008 crash to now with run up of everything, people saying you better buy now or you're never going to be able to buy. Do you see anything similarities by from 2006 and seven and eight with that run up and then the crash to now? Or do you think that, hey, we're just going to keep going? Like, what are your thoughts about this market now?
1: Yeah. So we don't have the conditions that we had in 08, 09 for a crash like we had in 08, 09. You know, that was a very different environment. You had a normal level of inventory you had very bad loans, you had high interest rates, you know, things like that. It was very, very different, you know, climate back then. Right now in the residential market, most of the borrowers are extremely healthy. They have sub 4% loans. 40% of the houses are owned free and clear in the the residential market. Um, And, you know, there's no inventory out there, right? I mean, we're a million units short in terms of housing inventory of what you would normally see in a healthy housing market. So the residential market. Hold, hold,
0: hold, hold on to that thought. So I, I hear that from realtors all the time that the inventory is low. Well, realtors love telling you about the inventory. That honestly, in my opinion, that doesn't matter. What de- what matters is demand. There's no demand for it. Interest rates are so high now. I know Fed said they're going to be much more dovish, where they're actually going to be backing off on the interest rates. But there's no demand because they cannot. I'll give you an example of Phoenix, Arizona. Well, before yeah. yeah. So we're, let's we're,
1: before you get into that, yeah. let's let's qualify. So real estate's hyper local. So there's like La Jolla, California. I just saw a house out there that I'm watching. That you know, one of my guys is flipping houses. There's a three and a half, four million dollar house, went under contract with multiple offers in days, you know, sold in days, multiple offers over asking price. My market where I live, you know, there's no inventory. So when the houses hit the market, there's multiple offers, they're selling in days. Um, interest rates but, have come where, back where would that because be the 10
0: I'm looking in Phoenix. I'm literally seeing hundreds. Like when realtors said there's no inventory, I'm like I go on uh, Realtor.com or like look up the MLS. There are hundreds and hundreds, some about thousands of properties. Let's make this year your best real estate investing year ever by coming to the Real Estate Wealth Builders Conference. And the Real Estate Wealth Builders Conference is where you can join hundreds of real estate investors and over 40 expert investor speakers and learn how to have an amazing success in your real estate investing business. The Real Estate Wealth Builders Conference is not like any other conference out there. This is a no sales pitch conference where the entire three days event is all about you and helping you you to meet expert investors teaching you how to invest and join a huge community of hundreds of like-minded real estate investors. And because you are a part of the Master Passive Income podcast, I'm giving you 20% off your RubeCon Pass. That's right. Get 20% off of your RubeCon pass by using the promo code MPI20, MPI20. You need to be at the Real Estate Wealth Builders Conference. Join us in the heart of downtown St. Louis, March 14th through the 16th for a transformative three-day event that's more than just a conference. It's a community of investors. Get your pass. go to rubcon.com rewbco dot com and use the promo code MPI 20 to get 20% off of your Rubecon pass for sale. So
1: that's Phoenix. Now I have some clients in Phoenix. There are certain pockets of Phoenix where properties are selling in days with multiple offers. So it's not all of Phoenix. It's only certain areas of Phoenix. So yeah, Phoenix, Austin, Texas, um, probably Las Vegas, you know, those markets have corrected the most. Uh, in terms of lack of demand and things like that, a lot of that's price point. So when you look at price point, that makes a big difference. Uh, so yeah, across the country, you know, uh, every market's different. and then there's even in markets, there's different pockets, right? So I say every state's different, every city's different, every neighborhood's different. and every every street and every neighborhood's different and every position on that street and every neighborhood is different, right? So real estate is a very hyper local thing. Now it can become a nationwide problem, like we saw in 0809, because again, that was a bad mortgage situation where you know mortgages were going bad, banks were failing, rates were rising, and there were a lot of strategic defaults because people were getting loans with no documentation, no verification. Uh, they were getting you know negative amortization loans, you know, all these you know different. They call them liar loans where you don't have to prove income or anything like that. You just had to have a good credit score, and it didn't even need to be yours, you know, to get loans. It was crazy. So now underwriting is very different. The borrower very different The, you know, uh, the interest rate environment is very different right now. And in most areas of the country, you know, there is a lack of supply. So, yeah, you need demand in order for supply to matter, right? Just doesn't matter how much there is of something if there's no demand. The other thing that's happening is now 10 years coming back. Interest rates are coming down. They're back. Almost, if not already, under 7% again. So that now, that 7% threshold is kind of that psychological threshold to get people off the fence. Whereas back in 08, 09, it was 5%. Remember, if rates went up above 5%, the market would cool. As soon as it dropped back down, it started stimulating. The other thing is, even when rates were 8%, you could get buy downs, you could get interest only arms, you know, builders were buying down and offering different, you know, mortgages. Right now in Denver, Colorado, I think it's, um, I can't remember which one of the home builders Horton or somebody like that is offering 4.75 30 year fixed loans. Uh, There's also mortgage products now to where you can go in at a higher rate, but you can adjust that, that long-term 30 year fixed rate down if rates drop. So, you know, there's a lot of mitigation of interest rates out there. Of course, it's seasonal right now too. Those
0: mitigations of interest rates. I've seen it where, in fact, I was talking to one build to rent um, builder and they literally have to charge like I don't know ten percent on top of what the actual market value is because they have to pay down the rate. They're like, oh, we'll get you at four and a half percent, but you're, I'm paying for it up front. But now, th- I completely understand. I, I know what you're what you're saying. I think it's 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 never the wrong time to buy in real estate. There's wrong deals, the wrong properties that that might make you go bankrupt, uh, but it's always going to be the right time. Now, how do we utilize the? Let's say we have low inventory and we have a high interest rate. How do we utilize that for us to, as investors, to buy and make sure we're making money in real estate?
1: So it depends on what your exit is. So you can pay anything you want for a property, as long as it meets your return requirements and your exit strategy. So if you're buying cash flow properties, well, what is your goal? Your goal is passive income. So you need a spread. So you have to do the math, reverse engineering. You got to have that spread that you're looking for if you're going to rent it out month, you know, monthly. Uh, or you might be okay with just breaking even, even and the house pays itself off, and you own a bunch of houses free and clear down the road. So it all depends on what your strategy is. If you're a speculator, if you're a speculator like me, opportunistic developer, that's what I've been my whole career. I don't like to own and rent properties. I like to build and sell and compound cash. Cash is the best tenant you can ever have. Never complains. Never doesn't pay. You know what I mean? I well, love that's how cash. banks
0: make money. That, that's why they are the wealthiest. <laughs> I've always been a
1: landlord of cash. So I would build properties, get them stabilized and then sell them. But I don't like being a landlord. I like being a landlord of cash and compounding. So my strategy, I have to be very in tune with what you just said. Is this market that I'm going into, is there demand? Is there demand for what I want to bring to market? What does that look like? What happens if the interest rates change on me? Because that's going to affect values. So that's where you really have to become an expert at what it is you're going to do. You need to have your exit plan in mind, and you need to have multiple exits. So just because I want to build and sell doesn't mean I'm going to sell. So I always go into an investment thinking it's not going to sell and I'm not going to make any money. And if, that's, if that happens, is that okay? And how much could I potentially lose? And if I do see that come to fruition, can I you know, absorb that loss? So the biggest mistake people make is they don't accurately calculate the risk and they're not able to withstand the hit when that comes through. So you got to make sure you understand those. So if I can't sell, I can rent well, how can I rent? I can do long-term, I can do mid-term, I can do short-term. Well, is that allowable in the markets that I'm in, in the neighborhoods I'm in, in the areas I'm in? What are the costs and licenses and permits and rules and regulations associated with that? What are the tenant laws you know, associated with the areas I'm in? In California, they're passing new tenant laws now that are very, very friendly to the tenant to where you, you know, you can't evict them, you can't change the amount of rent they're paying. I mean, I can't remember all the details, but very oh, prohibitive it, yeah. details in California on what you can and can't do with raising rents, evicting people, you know, all these different things. You gotta be very in tune with where you're investing based on what your strategy is. But it all starts with you got to become an expert, you got to know your market, you need to know the type of strategy you're gonna use and you know how to mitigate risk, how to accurately calculate that risk and, and mitigate it.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great idea and knowing what the risks are, number one, and then knowing Mm -hmm. the options of what you can do, because if you go into only having one strategy, then you might get stuck, but having experts around you, getting a mentor, getting somebody, getting a coach, that's really helpful because hopefully they're going to know all the different options out there and they're going to help you understand these are the things that you can do. You got to pick what's best for you. Now with the inventory, I want to quickly go back to the idea of inventory. And man, my rents have just skyrocketed. I and so the other side of inventory is rental inventory. My property prices are the, the, the you know, obviously the prices have gone up, but I make so much more money in rent now, and the reason why is because they they say, well, it's very low uh, supply of properties, and there's more people who want to rent. well, here's the, here's what I'm absolutely saying. I want to get your take on this. So the low supply of properties for people to rent long term, is very, very low. But here's another reason why, or the, re- the reason why I'm seeing. So before Airbnb, VRBO, all these properties were long-term properties. And people, when they vacation, go to hotels. Now, if you look in, let's say Phoenix, there's like 70,000 Airbnbs. And so those homes are literally taken off of the market and put uh, for long-term and put only for short-term. I think that's that can be potentially a big problem for like so uh, saturated with all these Airbnbs. But I see that that's another reason why demand is so low. Sorry, demand is so high. Yeah, demand is so low and the supply is so low for um, these properties is because Airbnb people are snatching it up. But what are your thoughts about that? Because there's so many Airbnbs now that that takes off our long term properties that we can buy.
1: Yeah, yeah. So the demand is high for long-term rentals, but the supply is low. There you go. Is that's that, right that's what you yep. Okay. saying. Yep. Yeah. So yeah. So short-term rentals. And that's why Phoenix, you know, Las Vegas, um, Austin, Texas, that's why those markets are correcting because a lot of people bought those thinking they were going to do Airbnbs. Because remember during the pandemic, you could put an Airbnb anywhere. You could be in a cornfield in Iowa, put a little <laughs> shack out there and people yep. would rent it because, hey, I've never been to a cornfield in Iowa. I can't go anywhere. Let's go check it out. So as soon as the world opened after the pandemic, you know, Airbnb came under pressure. Now, I started in the short term rental industry. So I was on the Outer Banks of North Carolina. That was a summer vacation destination. That's what it had always been. That's what it's always going to be. There's a very small percentage uh, of a year round population there and a small percentage of year round houses. And they're having a shortage there because that short term rental market is absorbing all those units because you can make so much more money. The other thing is midterm rentals are really absorbing a lot of inventory as well, because, you know, that's for traveling nurses, executives, turnkey furnished properties. Those are absorbing a lot of that inventory, too. So, yeah, that's putting pressure on for rent units. But again, you got to be careful because national home builders are now starting to do build build for rent communities. uh, And that's putting inventory in play in a lot of markets. So you need to really understand supply and demand. You know, what does that look like in your areas, your markets? I know Florida, there's a lot of markets in Florida that are correcting from a rental standpoint. Uh, You got to look at demographics, positive net migration. Where are people moving to and where are they moving from? So you want to understand those things. If you're going to own rentals, especially out of state, out of your area, you want to make sure you're rent, you're owning where people are moving to and there is demand for rental and there's not a lot of units coming, coming into the market. The other thing is there's more apartments than there are houses for rent. So if you own houses, there's going to be a bigger demand and you're going to get more of a premium because people want to have a house and they can't buy one because there's no no inventory in most areas. Now, forget, you know, we got to take Phoenix and those areas off the plate. But in tight markets like mine, where I'm at, most, you know, a lot of different markets around the country, I mean, there's nothing for rent. There's nothing for sale. Uh, you know, so if you want to rent something, you got to pay whatever when it comes up. Um, now, to that point, you will reach a point to where you can only rent for so much because people can only allocate a certain percentage of their income to rent, and they'll get to a point to where they just can't afford it. So you want to make sure you're in an area where people, if you're if your rent thesis, if your property thesis is I can bump the rents, you want to make sure you're in an area that will support those rents. You know, based on the incomes, because we're seeing a lot of multifamily where people made these bets that they were going to be able to raise rates and are not able to do it because of the different things we just talked about. Uh, new development coming into the pipeline, new apartments coming in the pipeline. Renting for cheaper than your value add deal 1970 vintage, you know, value add that you thought you were going to be able to get more than a new construction. You know, that's just not happening right now in some markets.
0: No, I totally get it. Now, let's switch gears a little bit because I know you do commercial properties as well. I think commercial is fantastic, you know, multifamily um, apartment complexes. So there is one, I guess, uh, you know, thought about that I have about multifamily that I I hesitate in doing very much of it because the biggest reason why is, when you invest in a multifamily, you know, it's, they call it syndication where they basically salesmen go out and try to get people to get money to put um, into a specific deal. And that's their job is they're, they're selling the deal and trying to get money to, um, uh, to take down the property. Let's say it's a $10 million property. Well, you need to have 20% of that in order to get financing. But here's my dilemma. And you help me because you're probably have a way like to explain how this is works out better. Um, So what I'm not a big fan of is exiting in, three to five years. It's it's you know, historically about seven years, but recently because it's been such a high turnover. Um, eventually, this is what it works out because you're going to all the time they want to exit. Like We want to exit. We want to exit. And so what happens is let's say you bu- build one apartment complex. Then a few years later, a syndicator says, oh, I want to buy that property. And then we're going to pay more because it's worth more. And then we're going to exit in three years. Then the next three years later, five years later, another syndicator comes on top and they pay more. And the next indicator after that three years that it comes and pays more, eventually you get to the very top and you're at the very end. You, you, there's, you there's no more money that you can. It's, it's the very top of the market. And then you're kind of stuck with something. It's, it, does that sound completely off? But just seems like you just have to keep finding somebody else to sell it to.
1: Yeah. So that's a tipping point that we reached, you know, at the end of last year, beginning of this year, primarily because of interest rates. So what happened was those values only kept going up obviously because people were boosting rents like you're doing raising the rents and it's all based off your net operating income but rates were coming down so as rates come down cap rates come down values go up so you know in the multifamily syndication game largely is a fee based business so they're making acquisition Sorry, it's fees a, it's
0: a, what? a, a fee fee based business yeah
1: you're a money manager so you're raising capital from investors yep. To do the bigger deals, and you're getting, you know, an acquisition fee. You're getting a disposition fee. So the way a syndicator makes money is on the acquisition, on the disposition, and then the delta, you know, the waterfall after the investors have been paid back. There's a profit delta on the back end that they split with their investors. So they have to exit. That's the only way a syndicator makes their money, other than their fees. So you know, a lot of syndicators are motivated by that. They just want to do deals because they get fees. Now. What happened is a lot of them, you know, got short-term interest-only loans. They were betting that interest rates were going to come down. Uh, Interest rates went the exact opposite way. Uh, A lot of people think they're going to come down now in the next, you know, three to six months. We've been hearing that for a while. They may or may not. The 10 years down right now, some people say it'll spike again. Some people say it'll come down. You know, nobody knows for sure. So you can never bank and bet and make your business plan based on an interest rate policy because you just don't know what that's going to look like. Um, But you can, you know determine what your rents might possibly be. If you look at the area, you know, your market, and you can understand that. So, you know, that's why they want to exit those properties and do that. But yeah, it's a constant churn. You got to find somebody that's going to buy either at a higher price than you, or maybe it's institutional money that's looking for a bond play. They don't care. The problem with that is you can get 5% risk-free right now in treasuries um, and in some banks versus buying a five or a six cap with risk. So you need a delta. So in order for that to make sense for an institutional investor, I need to get a six or a seven cap, you know, maybe even an eight cap because there's risk associated with real estate versus treasuries and other things. And that put a lot of pressure on the market. So we're seeing a lot of syndicated multifamily deals, big ones, you know, that are going back to the banks that, that are being sold for pennies on the dollar. You're seeing a lot of the same thing with office properties you know, office is taking a big hit, 75% discounts on some of those. Oh my
0: goodness. Like, I mean, yeah. with COVID, that proving that you don't have to be going to an office for your job. I mean, that, if there's anything that COVID proved, it was that people
1: can work And it also home. proved what are the good assets that didn't shut yes. down. Both, you know, housing, people needed a roof over the head. A lot of people thought people would stop paying rent in the pandemic. At scale, didn't they didn't
0: anybody have any issues, like all my little properties. 10% yeah.
1: here or there, you know,
0: it, it, I was like worried because it was all over the news. Like it's going to happen. You're not going to get, I was like,
1: people didn't want to lose their homes because of the pandemic. They didn't want to have to be forced to try to get out there and move. And they're working from home. So they, you know, they needed that more than ever. So housing did well, you got to buy groceries, grocery anchored centers did well. Um, You know, medical and dental, some dental clinics shut down, but medical, you gotta, you gotta have medical care and healthcare surgical centers. You know, they stayed open and operated, you know, Things like that. You have to have gas. You can own gas stations and lease the property to an operator. You don't have to run it. People need gas still until EVs take over the you know, that uh, sector. Um, you know, storage did well, believe it or not. No matter what, people don't let go of their stuff; they store no, they it. Uh, so that that always does well. And uh, you know, beyond that, um, you know, some restaurants were able to you know do okay, but you know, most of them stopped paying rent. You know, retail oh, took a beating. Restaurants took a beating. So we saw pandemic-proof, economic, Armageddon-proof real estate. So now you know what you should be investing in.
0: Where do you see the economy and the market going? Let's say, you know, Mm -hmm. not five years out, but like in the next three years. I mean, just give me, from your history, from your experience, um, do you see it continue to rise? Because we know there should be corrections in every market, but we haven't had a correction since 2008. Maybe 2020, they kind of call that, but it was like self-inflicted where people had to lock down. But what are your thoughts on the next two to three years?
1: Yeah, the interesting thing is, you know, since 2008, we had all that Fed liquidity, you know, quantitative easing, zero interest rate policy, we never saw inflation. So as long as the Fed can juice the economy, lower rates, and you don't have negative inflationary consequences, you're good to go and you're off to the races. So uh, we didn't have any issues at all till the pandemic, because that was a supply side inflation driven, you know, the inflation was driven by the lack of supply, not demand not because of, you know, all the wealth that was created. It was because there was no goods to buy, you know, and limited services. So where we're at now is that, you know, the labor market is still very strong. Consumers are still spending. The economy is still humming along pretty good. I, what, I can't go out past Q1 because we do know that there's been a lot of forbearance from the pandemic. There's been a lot of different things, you know, pushed forward from the pandemic. Consumers were loaded up with a lot of money. A lot of people made money in the markets and crypto, you know, things like that. So there's a lot of liquidity sloshing around out there that the bills don't come due for until Q1 2024. So once we get into the first quarter of next year of 2024, we're going to get a better understanding of where the consumer really stands, where the economy really stands, where the labor market really stands. We're seeing some layoffs here and there, but there's still more jobs than there are people willing to take them. People are still having to pay more money to get workers in a lot of segments. We still can't hire enough in construction to keep up with demand there. That's going to keep pressure on you know new houses uh, on you know commercial construction and things like that. Those prices haven't come down much. Um, So right now things are looking good, looking robust. The Fed has paused their rate hike campaign and said that they're going to cut rates you know at least three times next year. Um, So they right now are saying job done. We got inflation coming down. We're going to continue to work to get towards that two percent target. Uh, Everything is hunky dory, and they're okay. With the economy heating up and the bond market coming down, because the bond marking the bond market is doing the easing for the Fed right now that the Fed doesn't have to do, just like the bond market did the tightening for the Fed at the end of their rate hiking cycle that the Fed didn't have to do, because that eases and tightens you know monetary uh, uh, you know the uh, financial environment, monetary environment, liquidity environment, right? The raising and the lowering you know, of the 10-year yield. So right now markets are off to the races. They're having a good time. Bond oh, yields are down.
0: The last Fed uh, announcement. Oh, my goodness. I was like, oh, my, <laughs> it just popped. And oh, I was yeah. Like, wow, they're coming back to the races, like you said.
1: Exactly. So right now, you know, everything looks good. We're in an election year, you know, but that could all change. You could have, a, you know, You're right. war so many can escalate marriages. in Ukraine or in, you know, Israel, um, Yes. The, the, you know, Gaza, you know, that can happen. You know, you could have some sort of a big ge- geopolitical event. There could be things out there that we don't know that's lurking under the system. The biggest issues we have are corporate debt that has to be refinanced um, and real estate debt that has to be refinanced combined. But, you know, those aren't big enough, fast enough to be systemic like 2008-9 was, you know, so a lot of these things are more slow moving. Um, You know, a lot of people are worried about government debt and that being a problem, you know, thinking that there won't be an appetite for our debt around the world. Well, that hasn't proven true yet you know because we're the largest economy in the world we can print you know so the analogy so you're, you're i always seeing, use
0: you're not seeing any crash any coming or even a correction like you're it's going to keep moving along at least that's what that's what it sounds like
1: i don't see a deep recession like we saw in 0809 forget the pandemic we just shut down the country that's mm-hmm. you know that was an induced thing 0809 what a real recession is job loss at scale in manufacturing services you know, industry, construction, manufacturing, service industry, when people are losing their jobs at scale, 10, 20% of the workforce is out of work and can't get a job, now you got a recession. We're just not anywhere near that, and we're not seeing any signs that we're going to get there right now. There's some signs of slowing here and there, but there's nothing that says we're going to get a real recession where there's going to be job loss at scale, then the economy is going to slow. Now, the Fed is seeing some signs. That's why they did what they did, And that's why the bond market's coming down. uh, And that's what's stimulating the economy on behalf of the Fed. You know, the Fed may see, and he did say, hey, I may see, you know, signs of a recession next year. But what does that really mean? Is that negative GDP for a couple of quarters? Or is it real slowdown or real layoffs?
0: Yeah, that's uh, that's an interesting point. There's so many variables as well as, I mean, in a presidential election year, if there's an incumbent that's trying to stay on. Usually they try to make sure that the economy doesn't crash because they could, you know, if if it does, if there's bad things in the economy, their opponent can say, hey, look at what they're doing, come vote for me, all that sort of stuff. It's, and they left it's, the door
1: open to stimulate because rates are so high, the Fed didn't cut, they don't have to because the bond market is cutting. If something happens, now they can cut and they can well, stimulate.
0: I think the stip, well, when you talk about stimulation, if, if anybody doesn't know what that is, it's literally... Uh, uh, printing money—it's really what it comes down to. Like if you or I did it, it'd be called counterfeit. But the government does it. Hey, it's great. Let's just keep printing as much money as po- possible. Uh, no matter what, eventually that bill is going to come due. All this money that they printed for trillions and trillions of dollars—it's literally going to come due sooner rather than or, sorry. It seems like it'll be sooner rather than later, but it just hasn't happened. And it seems like okay, this year it's gonna happen, <laughs> then this year it's you know, not they've rolled
1: happen. a trillion off the balance sheet. They've still got 13 or whatever trillion to go, but they've rolled a trillion off the balance sheet and they're gonna continue rolling a trillion off the balance sheet. So, you know, that it was just, what I was it, saying it, earlier. It doesn't so there's a theory out there called modern monetary theory where mm-hmm. the government doesn't need to balance its books like we do, like a business does. Then the analogy I use is If you knew I had an infinite ability to print money, you would lend me and pay you back. You would lend me all the money I wanted, right? So I said, hey, let me borrow money at 10%. And you knew I had an infinite ability to print that 10% return. Wouldn't you just lend me forever as long as I could continue to pay you back?
0: Then so, we get into becoming like the Weimar Republic, where to buy a loaf of bread, you're bringing a wheelbarrow full uh-huh. of. So eventually it's going to come. It, it, well, we but again, you can't compare piper.
1: that because you're talking about a microscopic economy compared to the world's largest GDP. We are the yeah. largest GDP. If you look at Myanmar, you know, these other hyperinflation, we're a hundred times, a thousand times their economies. But you got so, China so it's and different.
0: Russia trying to get rid of the dollar which is not looking good for us. I mean, they're already in the process, literally literally doing it right now. So, there's so, so that's, many,
1: not, like, that's not accurate either. So that started back in the 1990s, okay, Brexit or BRICS. That, all, that conversation started in the 1990s. That sounds easy, but they can't do that. They would destroy their own economies trying to get rid of the dollar because what, we're, what are they going to use instead? If they don't use the dollar because goods and services, the world economy trades on the dollar. So the number one, they need to figure out, okay, what's going to be the reserve currency? Who's going to maintain that reserve currency? How is it going to be backed? Who's going to monitor and maintain what it's backed with? And whose GDP is large enough in order to do all that? And who is a free democracy that you can trust in order to be able to do all that? So what's happening is the Brexit or the BRICS countries, they're actually going the other way. India pulled out you know, they actually tabled that whole, you know, um, new reserve currency, whatever they were going to do conversation. So that's actually been tabled. Because if they were to do that, they would just bankrupt their countries instantly. Because if they get off the dollar, then everybody who has dollars in their country, it's all of a sudden worthless now, right? And then they still have to trade around the world. And even if you get off the dollar, well, all of the goods and services you're trading are still going to be based on the dollar, because nobody can agree on. What is the reserve currency going to be and who's going to maintain it, manage it, back it and take you know custody of those reserves that's backing that currency? So it's not as easy as it sounds. That's why they've been talking about it you know, since the early 90s. Now, trust me, it doesn't sound
0: easy at all. It sounds like it's a lot of work.
1: Yeah. So could it possibly happen someday? Sure. I mean, it will.
0: I mean, history of the world, like literally empires come and go, it it will eventually happen. I'm not saying it's going to happen tomorrow or even like 10 years or 20 years from now, but it will. But the, the thought that we can literally keep printing money It's like, well, eventually the money just isn't worth anything. That's really what it comes down to. What is worth things? Gold, silver, real estate, physical metal, you know, things that are actually tangible. That's absolutely worth Chickens and cows. There you go. Absolutely. Well, we could actually live on, man, great, great. We could keep going on this. This I love talking to you. This has been fantastic, but definitely I want people to know how to find you, how to connect with you and even check everything you're doing on YouTube and all that good stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah. GregDickerson.com. That's where all my stuff is, all my YouTube uh, social media handles. Um, yeah, go check it out. GregDickerson.com.
0: This is fantastic, Greg. Well, I really appreciate coming on the show, giving insights. I, I love talking to people who have been investing for more than, like, I don't know, two or three years, because a lot of people like, now, nowadays, they're like experts and they've only been investing for two or three years. Not saying anything bad about them, but it's it's like you need a lot more breadth of experience to really be able to understand like really where we're going, what's going on and what has worked and what hasn't worked. So I really appreciate you coming on, Greg.
1: Yeah, it's business cycles, peaks and valleys. So you need to understand where you are in the business cycle. I've been, this is my third business cycle now. Going back, I bought my first property, my house in 1990. So we were going, you know, coming off of a peak down into the bottom of that business cycle, late eighties, early nineties. Then it started upwards again, 2008, nine down, so here's the thing about you know what you just said. So when I started my career, basically 1997 till 2008 nine, all I knew was up only. Everything goes up. Property's only going to be worth more. Ain't nothing going to change because they ain't making no more of it. We all found out that's not true. Markets, oh, yeah. economies, they don't like you just said with the dollar. Things don't always go up. You know, and always and forever. We've been living in a very distorted reality over the last, really, since 2008 and nine, but more particularly since 2020. It's a very distorted reality of the markets, of interest rate policy, of liquidity, you know, of all of these different things. I mean, this is a new paradigm that we're in and a lot of the old rules don't apply. What you need to understand is good times never last, bad times never last. There's peaks and valleys and there's business cycles. The most important thing to know than anything else is the top. Where are you in the cycle and get out, take profits and be ready to take advantage when it dips? So understand that, know the top, and be able to you know position yourself to take advantage of the opportunities when that business cycle rolls over. So uh, that's, that's what a I'll great point. With.
0: No, I, I love it. I, I remember, um, I can't remember who it might have been Warren Buffett, but somebody said, you know, when people are buying, you need to be selling. You would be sell- selling when people are buying. Like you just need to be opposite of them because the herd just will keep running towards it, and then eventually they'll fall off the cliff. But And uh, yeah.
1: you want to exit when you want to on your terms, not when Excellent. you have to on whatever terms.
0: Absolutely. Greg, great. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Give us lots of great insights, man.
1: Awesome. Thanks for having me.
0: And that is it for today. Go ahead and get my free real estate investing course. Text the rental to 33777. R-E-N-T-A-L to 33777. You can also join my Real Estate Wealth Builders group coaching, get all my courses. All right, guys, we'll see you in the next show. See ya.